welcome to Making of a Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to study for his comprehensive exams. And I did not do an episode on Monday or Tuesday, and I feel really, really guilty for it. Uh, the reason being that it was my birthday party on Sunday, and I woke up on Monday, and it was a national holiday, and I was a little hungover, and I, instead of reading, I played video games. I mean, I tried to read, but the reading just did not happen as much as I wanted it to. Uh, and yesterday I was just in a funk. I read, but I could not bring myself to record a podcast. Uh, I think that this is part of the natural ebb and flow of burnout and stress and concentration that people express in the comprehensive exams. Uh, but it was deeply disturbing. I, I, I could not actually fully relax, even as I was like relaxing, because I thought, well, this is two days six books that you are not going to know when the time comes for you to actually sit down in a room with these five people and get grilled on everything that you know. And I have those like hideous nightmares where the questions that they ask you are precisely the books that you didn't read. Well, Brendan, it says here in this book that you thought wasn't important uh, that something happened that completely overturns your entire view of British history. What do you think about that? And then I squirm and melt into the ground. Uh, anyway, so I guess this is an apology for not uh, 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 putting out an episode on Monday or Tuesday. I hope to make up for it maybe by doing an extra episode with a friend some uh, off day. Today what we're going to be talking about, though, is clubs, associational life, in the 19th century. Uh, and this is really important to me because it's actually my main body of research. Uh, my own personal research is on the rise of social clubs in the 18th century in Britain. And I think that these are really important to understanding much larger processes that go on. Um, they're important for one, because they're fun. People joined clubs in the 18th century for the fun of it. They enjoyed to getting together and drinking and talking and reading and being part of some kind of collective action with people who were not their immediate family or friends or co-workers. Um, and scholars generally ignore fun things. They ignore fun as a motivation for stuff, preferring instead more hard, solid realities like economic interest or soft fuzzy unrealities like discourse. Clubs also are important because they help create this thing called civil society that philosophers since the 90s have thought is incredibly foundational to modern capitalism and democracy. Civil society is a space of social interaction between the family, the market, and politics where people can kind of interact independently of these things. Civil society in the American context is symbolized by the bowling club studied by Robert Putnam. People go outside of the circles in which they normally work and live in to participate in something civic, to participate in something common to the public. Clubs, of course, the rise of social clubs in the 18th century are crucial to the understanding of the rise of civil society. Finally, 
Clubs in the 18th century are organizations, and they help to spread new organizational forms. They do this in two ways. The first is that they help to train individuals in the sort of behavior that it's useful to do when you are participating in an organization. You can think of this as an extension of middle-class values of self-control and rationality. When you participate in the club, you have to deal with people you disagree with. So you have to be polite, you have to interact with them, you have to have rules to govern social organization. You become, in some ways, a good worker or a good bureaucratic subject. The second reason why clubs help the spread of organizations is more practical. They teach people how to run bureaucracies. Clubs are bureaucracies. To do them, you need to keep account books for the club, you need to take roles, you need to make rules, you need to adjudicate these rules, you need to do all of the boring stuff that you need to do when you, say, open a company or do some sort of other organizational thing. So by widespread club participation, also helps to spread tools of organizations. 18th century coffee houses have been described as penny universities because for the price of a cup of coffee, you could go in and read books, read newspapers, have conversations, and learn a bunch of stuff. Similarly, I think that clubs are kind of like uh, penny business schools. For the price of admission into a club, you learn how to run an organization. That's the 18th century. Today, I'm gonna to be talking about how that story extends into the 19th century, which I'm much, much, much less clear about. And because of my sleepiness this weekend and because of problems with uh, interlibrary loan books not coming, I haven't read enough books on it. Uh, this is really troubling because I have a meeting with my advisor today about this very subject, so I'm gonna kind of wing it. We'll see if I'm convincing. Um, you can tell me if I'm convincing, and then today my advisor will tell me if I'm convincing. Here's the top-line stories of what happens to clubs and voluntary associations in the 19th centuries. Clubs become increasingly specialized. Also, many of them, especially those that are devoted to social life, become more exclusive. Clubs become more complicated, and so they become more professional. There exists a professional class of a voluntary organization manager. They also grow from being local to regional to national, and then finally international. They also gain a ton of power by creating social capital for their members. And this is super important because it suggests that it's one of the reasons why certain people in the population are left out of political and social life because they are barred from the civil society organizations like clubs that create social capital. Finally, there's a change in what these clubs actually do. In the 18th century, participations in clubs or voluntary associations are mostly about face-to-face -face meetings. People join a club to go to a club to get drunk and to talk. In the 19th century, 
as clubs become more specialized, social clubs still exist, but there's a larger group of clubs that have instrumental purposes, that you join because you want something else to happen. And these have their members participate through virtual means of participation, through reading magazines, through sending off letters, through uh, giving membership dues, through having subscriptions, or simply through the act of being a member. Furthermore, we get a change in what this virtual representation is supposed to do. In the early 19th century, the club, the society, the volunteer organization is supposed to itself help change the things that it wants to change. But in the later part of the 19th century, these clubs and organizations increasingly search not to uh, uh, change things themselves, but rather to petition the government to pass laws to change things. So let's go through those steps one by one. First, I want to talk about how clubs get specialized. The 18th century clubs, of course, were specialized. Even the 17th century clubs were. When you read books of these things, you can find hilarious special clubs that you did not even know would exist, like the Ugly Face Club or the Society of the Gregories, which is open only to people named Gregory, or clubs for Latin learning or Greek learning or Hebrew learning or clubs for mechanics or clubs for people from America. But in the 19th century, there was an increasing development of a large range of voluntary organizations. One of the most notable are the pressure groups. There were voluntary organizations to help uh, abolish slavery, to try to get people to stop drinking as much, uh, to help abolish the corn laws. Uh, there were voluntary organizations to change the structure of politics itself, like the Chartists. There were also organizations on the other end of politics, organizations that were devoted to patriotism, to the king, to uh, uh, shoring up the Anglican ascendancy. There were also educational groups like mechanics institutes or statistical societies or scientific societies that served to both increase the kind of knowledge that particular groups had and also served to popularize this information, to spread it. Um, there were organizations that served particular kinds of class interests. Friendly societies and trade unions, for instance, were devoted to the working classes. Friendly societies were kind of ad hoc insurance groups that also had parties. Uh, they were really fun, and for the price of your uh, membership to the friendly society, not only would you get uh, uh, your family get money if you died or you got money if you were sick, but you would also get to go to like a cool party every six months and wear lots of regalia and drink with your friends. Trade unions, of course, often started out as friendly societies, but then increasingly they developed to serve as representatives of a particular trade in negotiations both with employers and with the state. Um, there were also institutions devoted to other groups of workers, like professional associations, that start increasingly to dominate the lives of professionals in their respective arenas. The first such uh, professional association was the Society of the Civil Engineers, I think in 1822. And over the 19th century, you get profession after profession coming under the sway of a voluntary organization. Uh, these are not just little private social clubs, but they serve important roles in accrediting professionals 
and in setting standards and in pushing the very core of the professional body, the spread of the kind of information that the professional needs to do their job. So medical associations help to push exactly how it is that a doctor becomes a doctor by going to school and passing an exam, and of course then by joining the medical association. And there were consumer groups like the cooperative movement or the uh, anti-corn law league or places that served to motivate people not on basis of their class or their profession or their interests, but by the fact that they were consumers. There were also simply social clubs. These guys remained. These clubs remained in the 19th century, places where people went simply to have a good time. Places, frankly, for men to get drunk in and rub shoulders with other men. Now, these clubs were all becoming increasingly exclusive. In the 18th century, clubs, even the more special ones, were sometimes a little woolly and wild. People were not always equals. Uh, a good example of this is the Masons, the Freemasons. In the 18th century, the Freemasons were radically inclusive. At a time where people divided uh, by race, by politics, by uh, class, and by religion, the Masons attempted to create a social space where all of these uh, differences were erased. People in the secret halls of the Masons, wearing funny clothes, initiated with funny rituals, and, you know, doing funny things, were in some ways bracketed out of the differences that defined them in the public sphere. They offered a space of equality where people like princes of the blood could rub shoulders with mechanics and talk to them with the use of reason. In the space of the Masonic Hall, differences in religion were wiped away. Dissenters and Anglicans who might not talk to one another outside of the Masonic Hall talked to each other within the Masonic Hall. And political interests were also put on hold in the Masonic halls. There you explicitly could not discuss politics, which meant that Tories and Whigs, who might be at one another's throats outside of the Masonic Hall, were able to socialize within it. Of course, women were usually not allowed to participate in Masonic rites, but this was probably not as big a problem for 18th century people because the men who were participating in the Masonic societies thought of themselves as representatives of their families. They were not simply them, but they were people who stood in for the women and children and uncles and aunts who they were living with. Now, in the 19th century, these clubs become increasingly exclusive. Uh, starting in the French Revolution, uh, the Masons lift their bar on political speech when it came to proclaiming their loyalty to the crown. So Masonic lodges quickly to demonstrate their loyalty became jingoistic. They became places where political dissent was no longer welcome. And as Masonic lodges spread outside of Britain to the colonies, they became increasingly exclusive as well. The 18th century Masonic lodges barred uh, membership only in cases of atheism or polytheism. You basically just had to be a monotheist. But this was a problem when Masonic lodges moved to India because there were lots of monotheists there who weren't white. There were lots of Muslims there. 
And increasingly in the 19th century, these Masonic lodges started to explicitly ban non-white people from joining. And, of course, there's always the tricky problem of their bar on women. Well, in the 19th century, as men and women become disaggregated, as there's this change in public and private spheres, well, then there's no longer this excuse that men are simply representatives of their family. You have individualistic men participating in a group activity away from their families. Now, as my example of the Mason shows, one of the other trends in club life is for them to become first national and then international. Clubs started by joining up with other social clubs, other voluntary associations of similar ilks, and they started to create what I call the national branch model of association. You have local branches of a society that organize meetings and uh, drum up support and get subscriptions and talk to people, and then you have a central national hub where these organizations are coordinated. Now this hub also does an increasingly large number of things to participate in a national discussion. They publish magazines, they organize conferences, they commission papers and books, they even have publishing arms that publish uh, wide ranges of material to push their particular vision of society. And to do this, they become increasingly professional. Starting in the 19th century, you start to have private staffs that are hired by these voluntary organizations. You get professional clubmen. We can think of this as the development of something that seems pretty common now, the public service professional. Of course, clubs were always a business. Um, publicans in the 18th century, uh, since the time of Wilkes, benefited from meetings in pubs and club rooms, and they would often serve as kind of informal club chairmen, informal club boosters. But in the 19th century, you get people whose entire job it is, is to organize what voluntary associations do. They can be secretaries or editors of newspapers, but they all shared one thing. Their entire livelihood was based on serving a voluntary association. In 1849, I have a quote from somebody who says, For the cure of every sorrow, there are patrons, vice presidents, and secretaries. For the diffusion of every blessing, there is a committee. And we shouldn't think of these professional clubmen as bound to one cause. No, they migrated from different organizations. Uh, I have a guy who was an editor and a secretary for clubs and societies, and he migrated from temperance organizations to chartism to the cooperative movement. In every case, bringing the same kind of organizational model, doing the same kind of things. Now, what did this do? Well, this created a national public that had a great deal of power. By participating in voluntary associations, all stripes, people could increase their social capital. In a time when public life was becoming increasingly anonymous, this gave people a lot of power. If you were a member of a Mason, you were a member of the Freemasons everywhere you went. And so you could rely on this vast network of co-fraternal people to get you all the things that you might want, like jobs and trust and friends. Similarly, these networks could also help provide you information. When we spoke about the rise of white settler colonies, 
Last episode, I made the point that these were often spread through voluntary associations, through associations that were devoted to pushing migration in particular colonies. Perhaps the most emblematic source of power of these voluntary associations is the trade unions movement, which over the 19th century went from small, local, associations of skilled tradesmen who are often just going on the friendly society model of mutual insurance to national organizations of skilled tradesmen to national models of all workers together, which of course culminated in the creation of the Labour Party, of an entire political party devoted to the interests of a particular group of people. Now, these were based on the original kind of associational moment in face-to-face -face interaction in the public. And this meant that the people who were barred from the public sphere became increasingly politically disenfranchised. And here I'm talking about women. Because women could not participate in the public sphere to the full extent of men, they were barred from forming the kinds of voluntary associations that gave so many groups of people political power in the 19th century. There were fewer female trade unions because women were not, in general, as welcome to go out into the public sphere and get drunk and talk and read newspapers. And because of this, women were barred from increasingly more trades. They were barred from an increasingly wide amount of public participation. Now, over this time, things move. You grow from local bodies of people who meet with one another face to face to regional national movements that seek to have a direct influence on their constituents through virtual participation in things like magazines and newspapers and subscriptions. Finally, in the 1890s, you get another move where these national organizations stop in general trying to directly reform their constituents and instead seek to influence the government to do stuff. Instead of a group like the Temperance Society encouraging its members not to drink so much, you get the Temperance Society encouraging the government to pass a law to make sure that people don't drink so much. Now, why does this happen? Well, I think it is the rise of what my advisor calls the society of strangers. Because in the Victorian city, you have such high population densities, and these populations were made up increasingly of migrants, people stopped being able to know the people that they interacted with face to face. Also, as the places that people worked got bigger, people might not have as many connections to the people who employed them or to the people who they worked beside. Because of this, you had increasing problems of trust. You needed trust, not only for the economic reasons that people will point out over and over again to get loans, to get a job, but also for personal reasons, because you needed to trust the people who you might want to be friends with. You needed to trust the people who you might want to marry. You needed to trust the people who you got your information from. These institutions helped make 
this trust happened by making individuals understandable to one another, even if they did not know one another personally. Membership in a social club like the Freemasons was the same everywhere. It designated you as responsible, as middle class, as somebody in the 19th century who supported a particular political moment. Membership in upper class social clubs uh, like that of the London clublands of whites and boodles and all those things that you read about when you read P.G. Wodehouse novels marked you out as a particular kind of upper class person who liked to drink and was a little bit fun. And these organizations also helped to make social life visible and understandable on a national level for their members. A person who participated in the cooperative movement got information about what the cooperative movement was doing, not just in their localities, which they could see, but also in the nation, which they couldn't see directly. This created a body of knowledge that allowed people to imagine themselves as living in a nation, as having a stake in national problems, and as having their lives influenced by national trends, which they then had a power to change. Today, this doesn't seem too revolutionary. I understand that the things that happen in my life are influenced not just by the things that happen to the people I know, but by national trends like unemployment and by international problems like trade balances and f uh, tariffs and stuff like that. But in the 19th century, this was truly revolutionary. It connected people's daily lives to an understanding of wider, sometimes international movements. This is why for all of the 19th century, you get so many people having such a deep and abiding love of something that for us seems entirely limp and unsexy. That is free trade. People in the 19th century really, really actually believed in free trade the same way that we believe in democracy today. And you get countless and countless and countless bits of political propaganda showing how free trade gives people a bigger loaf of bread than uh, restrictive trade does. But this is only possible because free trade organizations like the Anti-Corn Law League, whose magazine, The Economist, still exists, pushed a vision of an international order that included free trade as one of its central tenets. It created information for people to consume that helped to change their view of what the world was. And for the same reason why the exclusivity of clubs was a problem with the creation of social capital, this exclusivity was also a problem for this generation of cultural capital. Thanks very much for listening to me today. I have to thank Jonathan Lear for giving us our music and Duncan Barton for giving us our image. If you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes, share us to all your friends, light a candle in my honor, and go to the website at historian.live. Uh, thanks very much, and I promise I will actually see you tomorrow.